Hello and welcome to the EuroLeague Adventures podcast playoff special. I'm your host, Rob Scott, and we'll be looking back on the first two games of each series. It looked after the first chapter that we might have four sweeps on our hands, but the second slate saw Seska lose a home playoff game for the first time since 2008. Back then, things were very different, both Montepaschi Siena and unrestrained financial capitalism were still a thing, and also Seska won the EuroLeague title that year. How times change. Meanwhile, in Istanbul, Barcelona and Zalgiris both come away with a split over Efes and Panathinaikos, respectively. Real Madrid, the only squad to go up 2-zip, as Panathinaikos missed their big chance in the opener. With me to discuss all of that from Split Croatia, it's Austin Green. Austin, have you been to the Drazen Petrovic statue in Srebrenik yet? Not yet, but that's definitely on my list of things to do here pretty soon. I think maybe in like a week or two I'll go check it out. Excellent, excellent. I look forward to the uh, to the inevitable photo opportunities on that one. Uh, over in Bristol, George Rowland, how's it going? Yeah, it's good. Thank you. Been enjoying like lots of like very sunny bank holiday British vibes this weekend, so I'm feeling pretty happy. Excellent. Well, both the phrase bank holiday and sunny British vibes probably unfamiliar to our European and, and, and American listeners, but I've been enjoying both of those as well, George. Definitely know what you mean there. Um, let's get straight into the games, guys. As I said, three splits, one series that's gone two zip. Um, we'll we'll look at the the series that are currently tied to begin with, and let's go straight into potentially. I think even considering what's happened uh, in game two across the board, maybe the biggest surprise uh, in my mind so far: Seska and Basconia tied one apiece. Seska won the first game, ninety four to sixty eight. I'm I didn't see that game. Um, obviously a blowout, but but I believe it was it was close until you know the final final uh, the final stages. Um, Seska. Not lost a home playoff game for uh, over 10 years, as I said in the intro. But Basconia comes storming back to win game two, 78-68. They were up big in that game. Uh, Austin, Basconia, uh, a four home wins from a EuroLeague title. Can they do it? Um, That's a pretty tall task. I don't know about that yet, but they're in a pretty good position. Um, I think, you know, any time you can snap someone's 21-game home winning streak in the playoffs, like that's a pretty incredible accomplishment. And I picked Vasconia to win this series in my hot take Twitter uh, prediction tweet, um, but I didn't think they would actually do it. Uh, like I didn't think they would get get the split in Moscow. Um, but I think you just saw the value of a guy like Vincent Poirier, who was an absolute monster in game two. He's seven feet tall and super physical and just plays with a relentless motor. And his hustle, I think, really set the tone for Basconia, especially in the second quarter. He just went on this rampage where he had like a chase down block, uh, threw down a big alley-oop dunk, had uh, like stole the ball from Sergio Rodriguez and had another breakaway dunk, broke up an alley-oop and then a putback dunk off of Vildoza miss. So Poirier was really excellent. He finished with 14 points, 15 rebounds. And then the other guys on Basconia, you know, this is, it's starting to look like the team that I kind of envisioned at the beginning of the year, where they just have a bunch of scrappy dudes who are very physical, Siobhan Shields, Toko Shingalia. These guys are diving on the floor, making good plays defensively. Darren Hilliard was hitting threes. Um, so it, it was just a great effort from Basconia. And then they also got a little bit lucky too, which, which is, you need some luck if you're going to pull off a big 
big upset like this on the road. Uh, Seska missed a lot of open looks, uh, shots that they would normally make, and Basconia was able to capitalize on that. So, um, you know, and overall, it's been a close series. That first game, the final score was a blowout, but the first half was really close, and then Sergio Rodriguez just completely dominated the third quarter. So, uh, you know, a, a vintage Chacho performance in that one is what turned that game into a blowout. But in game two, he was a little bit more quiet. Uh, Basconia didn't give up any any huge runs and, yeah, able to steal it and take home court advantage back to Vittoria, which is a, a pretty huge accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, this game was, was uh, a little bit um, reminiscent, I thought, of, well, I thought it was going to end up this way at least, um, of the, the one of the, I think it might have been the final game of the, the season, the regular season, or round 29, round 30, sometime like that, where... I kind of saw that Basconi, I think, was up in that game too, but Seska just made their inevitable run and ended up the winners in that one. A little bit of a preview because Seska would just run off the floor early on in this one. Um, Basconi was up 34 to 20, um, and Seska got it down to a three point deficit with four minutes left in the first half. Basconi made a few turnovers, and you think, okay, here comes the inevitable Seska halftime lead. They've gone on their run. Um, but Basconia put a stop to that. They led by five at the half. A huge psychological boost, I thought. And you said it with, with, with Poirier, man. Like, just, just the motor on this guy. He was an animal. Um, got weekly MVP or round two MVP honors um, for, for this display. And this game was a real eye-opener for me because I, I haven't really watched a lot of Seska in the regular season. You know, you know they're going to be up there, you know, number one, number two seed. Um, this is really where they're going to get tested. And... They're obviously highly talented and skilled, and I'm not really saying this is criticism of their mentality. You know, I kind of hate doing that when you know we're not in the locker room, we're not even at the games physically. Um, they're playing hard and hungry, I'm sure, but I hesitate to use the word soft. So I'm going to say, like, do they really have the motor that they're going to need to get through a series like this to get through a final four? Because you look at this bench and. Basconia made, made, made their run um, when when Seska was, was into their bench. And you look at this Seska bench, Daniel Hackett kind of, you know, had a lot of injury problems sort of beyond his, certainly past his peak level of performance. Alec Peters, like, this, this, you know, Seska used to bring all EuroLeague guys off the bench. I'm just not sure they're that deep this season. And... Man, they just ran into a buzzsaw in, the, in, in this game. Um, you know, George, do you, do you think this is really like a Seska team that's going to go the distance? Or are they, are they really, you know, up against it in this series? Yeah, I think, like, I wouldn't say they've gone soft. I think it's more they've gone stale. Like, they kind yeah, of... Yeah, that's probably a better word, yeah. They didn't really update their roster much this summer. They just brought in, like, end-of-the-bench role players, like you said, and that's kind of really weakened their weaken their depth and it's kind of like it's been kind of like the past few seasons like the gradual like winnowing away of that really good Seska team that won the title like you've still got some of the ghosts of that team but like the losses of players that were on that team kind of I think is is starting to tell and like the retire retirement of like the older Russian players and just like the gradual it's been a very like gradual process of it where I think the Seska team still has that kind of I guess an identity but it's just kind of so much of it's been kind of phased out that kind of the team's just faded into the background rather than combusting um and I think that kind of is most telling in a game like this where kind of as you've both mentioned a guy like Poirier who's like super high motor like super physical and he's gonna like kind of put loads of effort into a game it's just 
it kind of, I guess, shows how kind of Sesco have fallen a bit and they don't have these guys who can come off the bench and give them energy anymore. Um, kind of that was my takeaway from, I didn't get to see the whole game, but like from, from watching bits of it, that was kind of my hot Sesco take. Yeah. I mean, Austin mentioned it in his, in, in his first uh, little, little spiel there. Um, you know, the first game, okay, Rodriguez, you know, comes away and, and, and blows Basconi away, away with with a run of points. I mean, he hit his, uh, I think it was three of his first five three-pointers in this, then missed six of the last seven. Um, oh, sorry, missed missed the last six, sorry, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm looking at the stats right. Um, and it's really like, it's really a, like a Corey Higgins, Will Clyburn-based team this year, which is great because both of those guys are completely awesome. Um, they both had their usual kind of efficient outings. But also a little bit puzzling, like Nando DiColo, only 16, pushing 17 minutes in this game for six points. Game one, um, again, he only played 16 minutes. I mean, is there an injury here that I've missed, guys? I mean, is he is he struggling? Because he just didn't really impose his will on the game. Uh, and yeah, when Seska went to that bench with the likes of Hackett, with the likes of Peters... Um, you know, you're running into guys like Darren Hilliard, who's playing, who's who's just, you know, really fits into this this Basconia team. Um, you know, has has a pretty good motor, made some shots. You know, um, they're bringing Luca Vildoza off the bench. You know, Matt Janning didn't play that much in this game, but had a three. You know, they're just guys who do stuff. Um, yeah, I just thought that, that that Basconia just seems to have momentum in this series. Okay, we may be getting a little a little bit carried away, but. You know, Austin. Um, you know, what can Seska really do to to bring themselves back into this series, which it undoubtedly is now? Yeah, I think they definitely need more out of Decolo. Like you mentioned, I don't know if there is an in- injury issue there or not. Um, but yeah, I think I think in the first game he probably didn't play as much because it turned into a blowout. But 17 minutes in a game two that you know was was pretty close the whole way is is kind of crazy. Um, one thing that they can do is have Will Clyburn just not shoot pull-up threes. Um, He did hit a couple threes in this game, but I think they were both like catch-and-shoot variety. Uh, But anytime he pulls up for a three-pointer, like off the dribble where he's like dribbling for five seconds and then just launches it, that's a big win for Basconia. Like when Clyburn's at his best is when he's attacking off the dribble or when he's posting up smaller guys. And when he does that, when when he can build up some momentum going to the rim, then he's super tough to stop. And he's a good passer uh, in those situations as well. But if if he's just going to sit there and like chuck up threes like he did at the beginning of the first quarter, that's definitely going to play into Basconia's hands. So that's one problem. And then the other thing is like, as much as I hate to say it, um, like Kyle Hines has just definitely lost a step or two. And I think, you know, as, as a small ball center, um, he needs kind of that, that peak athleticism to go up against a guy like Poirier, who's so much bigger and is so active. And with, with Hines just looking, you know, a little bit aged, uh, as he should, um, I think that's just something that Seska is not used to dealing with. And it's a problem that they don't necessarily have an answer for. Yeah, I mean, de- defensively, they they basically just had to double both Poirier and Toko Shingelia in the post. Um, they they did that. Um, they kind of flood, you know, they use the typical like like flood the strong side defense, double the post. Um, that does leave you know that leaves rotations to make. That leaves um, you know guys open usually on the weak side. Um, but you know, the, there's a couple a uh, couple of really really big threes. Uh, Vildoza hit one um, in the in the third quarter. Um, which was, which was, you know, it was only a five point game at that time. And this, that seemed to be the, you know, the, the, the time that, that Seska really let the game slip away from them. Um, Shields had a fast, a fast break, uh, two, two and one, uh, on, on Rodriguez. 
um, which was really just like, you know, Siobhan Shields is, is a freaking freight train when he gets uh, going in transition. And we all know that Rodriguez isn't, you know, probably not the guy kind of guy who's always going to, you know, step under and take a charge. He would have been better off just giving up the, the layup and not giving up the foul. Um, and then Poirier and, Poirier and, and Shingalia just, you know, really rotated hard at the other end, protected the paint. Um, and then, as I said, Vildoza hits, a, hits a, a three with his man, helping off doubling down on Poirier. So, I mean, it seemed like Basconia had, you know, both a physical advantage in the, in, in the game too, but also just, they just controlled it. You know, I was really, really, uh, it was really, I was really taken aback um, just how much Basconia kind of dictated what happened in this game. Um, you know, Seska just seemed like they were playing catch up and, and, and playing to stop the opposition rather than dominating. And that's, that's something, you know, I, you know, that's, that's really not that, not that common with, uh, with Seska Moscow. Yeah. Seska, like in the past, always had this, um, kind of almost like monopoly on signing those big kind of athletic guys across the whole of their roster. And that's kind of one thing that kind of sprang to my mind as well when I was kind of putting together my thoughts all about kind of, what's happened to Seska over the past few years and like yeah like they just don't have those guys kind of coming off the bench like you said Rob earlier like they used to be able to bring all your early guys off the bench now it's kind of Alec Peters, Joel Belomboy, Daniel Hackett like post-injury and like even a guy like Andre Voronsovic like I don't think he ever made an all Euro league team but like a few years ago he was always like almost hanging around that conversation always being a great shooter like good defensive player from the fort for and now he's just like gone to like playing eight minutes a game like the shooting seems to have gone he's not really able to do anything else and just I feel like he's almost like a kind of representation of what's happened to the Seska squad as a whole almost in these past few years. Yeah, well, you said it like just, just like a ghost of of his former self. Yeah, I remember in the in in the final four they won. Um, you know, he was like he shot fifty percent from three that year. I think you know he's running like pick and roll. He's attacking switches. He's standing in the corner and it's basically automatic. Um, yeah, just just not not the player he he once was at all. Yeah, he's like sub thirty percent three point shooting this year. I think um, like. I don't even know what he's shooting on twos, but I don't imagine it's good. Like, I think that's kind of really telling for what's happened to Seska. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let me just do some quick mental arithmetic before I bring Austin in for, for our final point. Yeah, Seska won the first game by 26 points. Are we, are we overreacting here a little bit? Austin, what do you think? Maybe just a little bit, because like I mentioned, Seska missed a lot of open shots in this game, and I think they will normally hit those. Um, also, they only scored 68 points in this game, which was their lowest total of the season. The only other time they were below 70 was a game early in the year at Olympiacos that they won uh, 69-64. So this was an uncharacteristically bad Seska performance offensively. I wouldn't expect them to replicate that, but also it's going to get tougher going back to Vitoria, where there's going to be like 13,000 Basconia fans. So it'll, it'll be really interesting to see how Seska respond in Game 3. Yeah, de- definitely, a- absolutely. Uh, George, any any final thoughts on this series before we move on? No, I think we should keep things moving along. We've got a, I'm guessing we've got a time limit tonight. <laughs> okay, yeah, let's keep things moving. Just like Zagreus moved the ball in there, eighty-two to eighty win in Istanbul to tie that series one apiece. The first game blowout to end all blowout, seventy-six to forty-three. I don't think anyone expected that to happen again, but I don't think that many people expected them to come away with the win. Um, they were up 17 in this game, ended up squeaking it by two. 
Uh, George, just instant reactions to this game after you saw it. Um, what went right for Zagreus that didn't go right in the first game? Um, I think like getting well, Vesely being in kind of foul trouble was really helpful. Obviously, I think like my the thing that struck me kind of on a meta level about Fenerbahce in this game is like it's a similar thing to kind of something in the past where they've had, I guess, kind of a slightly thin roster. Um, and like once you scratch the surface of that, like maybe there's some weaknesses in behind it, even though they've got really elite players up front. So like with Joffrey Laverne injured and Vesely in foul trouble, kind of that left kind of next man up, Ahmed Duverioglu or Nicola Melli. And Zoic went to Melli at centre for a lot of the game, I think. Um, and kind of the thing that struck me is like how a guy who's been in and around the rotation like Deverioglu is still isn't really trusted or like he's only trusted situationally in a situation where he can be prepared so the prime example I have of this is in the the final against Real Madrid where he played really well against Gustavo Ayon but like in a situation where it's kind of unexpected and Vesely can't play as much he kind of gets pinned to the pine again they go for probably like a a suboptimal centre in Melly which I think really made things a bit easier for a guy like Brandon Davis to get things going in this game um, and kind of it's less of a kind of central kind of anchor for the defense which makes things easier for Lanovas to kind of do his little weird herky-jerky low post moves um, that's kind of what really struck me about kind of what happened in this game less of a, a point of where Jaguaris played well more of like a, a weird point on kind of a theme for Fenerbahce over the past few years, I think. So, so you're basically saying that Deveri Oglu can only play when he has pre-match preparation and he kind of looks like the guy he's going up against? <laughs> Maybe, yes. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, that's, that's a solid theory. Um, I'm, I'm one that I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with, but um, I, I thought this, this game really was the best version of Zalgaris and it, it just was really I mean this is kind of a cliche but just a tribute to, to Saras and, and the way he's got this team we've got this team drilled when it's when it's all clicking because basically I mean this this game was just like a demonstration of the fact that what Zalgaris wants to do and, and pretty much has consistently done under Saras um, amongst other things is they want you to switch and they want you they want to attack those mismatches um, so many times Davis was 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 you know up against Gooderich um, you know, you had Ula Novus being guarded, guarded by a guard, where, as you said, just like the, you know, the, uh, the winning bucket, you know, ended up being the winning bucket, was this weird little herky-jerky sort of half-hook, half-scoop. Um, they just really just had Fenner chasing the ball, chasing, the, chasing those mismatches the whole game. Um, and Fenner can kind of get by on talent, and they nearly, they nearly did that in this game. They nearly got back for the win. And I think if they had come away with the win then you'd be looking at this series, I think, being psychologically over. But, man, they just they don't have guys who can, make, who can make their own shot. They don't have great talent. They don't have anywhere near the amount of talent, certainly in the ball-handling positions, uh, that they had last year when they had Pangos and Micic. But they move the ball really well. So they make, they make the defense make so many decisions on a play that it's just really difficult to, you know, to concentrate. And that's basically just you know, how they got up. They, they, they just forced Fenner into mistakes. Having said that, um, I thought this was a game that would have Zoch tearing his hair out because there were so many uncharacteristic defensive breakdowns by Fenerbahce that, that are really not not normal um, on any of Bradovic's team. They got beat on cuts, they missed box outs, you know, the rotations broke down, they got beat in transition. Um, you know, Austin, you, you were there in Istanbul at the end of the season. You said Fener kind of slept worked through, you know, was sleepwalking for a few games, got by on Slukas and, and uh, Bobby Dixon coming alive. 
Um, that that kind of nearly works this game. Um, is it going to work in the rest of the series, or have we got a battle here? Yeah, we've definitely got a battle. I I watched these games back to back, like one right after the other, and it was jarring the difference in Fenerbahce's mentality, in their intensity, their energy on defense. Like they just didn't really show up in game two, and I don't know if it's because they blew them out like so in such dominant fashion in game one that. Maybe they thought it was going to be easy or something, but they just they they slept walk through the first three quarters, like our friend Savash said on Twitter, and then um, yeah, and then they were able to get it back in the fourth, but they they had just dug too big of a hole, and it was really similar to those two games I saw when I was in Istanbul against Barcelona and against uh, Buducnas, where they basically just were outplayed for thirty thirty five minutes and then won the game late. Uh, but Zalgiris, uh, different different level of team than you know than Buducnast, obviously. Uh, I thought George's point about Duverioglu was interesting, especially because I thought he played really well in the first game. Um, helped them, you know, kind of dominate the battle inside where Brandon Davies, Dion Thompson, like those guys uh, were just completely outplayed in game one. Davies only had three points. He also had three turnovers and his shot was blocked three times. Thompson only had one point, four turnovers. He also had one of his shots blocked. Um, so they were just like completely outmatched in the first game. But then in game two, Davies scored two points in the first few minutes. Uh, Thompson had six points in the first quarter, like got a couple easy buckets, partly because Fenerbahce was just playing lazy defense. And I think that gave those guys a lot of confidence. And that was kind of the key for Zagoras was just their confidence level was visibly so much higher in this game where they were attacking the basket with aggression. Um, Ulanovis, like you mentioned, was excellent, just slicing to the rim. Um, every, every Marius Gogonis looked so much better, even though he scored one less point. Like, I think he just played a lot better in game two. Um, so, yeah, th- they just came out with a lot more confidence and Fenerbahce didn't match their energy level and if if they don't do that in Lithuania then they might be in trouble yeah I mean I thought it was really really interesting how in the fourth quarter of game two Fener really just collapsed the defense on on Davis and to be fair they did force a few turnovers um obviously the last play you know Davis couldn't finish inside but real real heads up play um I forget who actually got the rebound and then um to, to keep to keep the ball alive and then Gregonis really um, cool awareness just to drive baseline and find uh, find Ula Novus for that for that game winner. But I think that's something we're gonna, that, that they're going to have to do um, it, because you know you would kind of look at this Algaris team. They don't have a whole lot of dead eye three point shooters. Um, you would maybe take your you know take take your chances. But you know it's gonna it's gonna be tough because because Davis is winning uh, you know so far as, as certainly in game two won that inside battle. Um, you know, I think he's really emerged. If, I mean, I guess he emerged last season as one of the best bigs in, in EuroLeague, but he's definitely cemented that reputation. Um, and if this even goes to, say, four or five games, that's it. You know, I think it's going to be a hell of a lot of that is going to be on, off his back. Um, any, any kind of, you know, more thoughts about, uh, about what Fenerbahce can do to, to fix this? I mean, uh, Austin, I mean, do, do you think they just need to execute better or are there kind of like, uh, you know, tactical things that they that they need to address? I think for them, it's more of just an energy thing. Like, um, you know, Obradovich and Yasekevich just know each other well tactically. I don't think anything that Zagoras was doing was necessarily surprising for Obradovich. It's just the players were just kind of moving sluggishly and, and just seemed like a step slow. Um, Kalinic had like a weirdly bad game where he was just committing a lot of mental mistakes and um, yeah, so I, I don't know. 
of what Fenerbahce can do, I guess, more than just like up the intensity level. Uh, because in, in game one, their defense was swarming. Uh, like like you mentioned with Davies, like they were collapsing on him and just making making his life a nightmare. Um, so I don't know if maybe they need to play Duveryoglu more so he can you know give offer a little bit more resistance in the post. Uh, Vesely definitely needs to stay out of foul trouble. Um, but yeah, th- I guess those are just kind of the the main things for me is just play harder. <laughs> like as as easy as that sounds, I guess. Yeah, I, de- I definitely think uh, you know that's something we can expect in Game Three. Uh, George, um, any kind of uh, any kind of concluding thoughts on this this series? Yeah, I think like where like, like similar to what Austin said, like this is kind of like an intensity issue. Like it feels more like Fenner having like a, an off game or a bad game, um, and it kind of felt like something that they can switch around and they should probably be fine and probably will. In unfortunately, like while it would be nice to see Jaguars in the final four, like this is probably still Fenner's kind of could close this off quite easily. Like and in contrast, like. We were talking about Seska earlier, like it feels like watching Seska there's like deeper issues just than like intensity and kind of keeping things up with that squad. Whereas like this game with Fenner, it was like I think just an off game. Yeah, I mean I yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't I, I, I mean I, I are, we, are we gonna that. give Zalgris another game? Because man, I, I don't I don't really know. I mean, this seems like kind of Fenerbahce falling asleep for maybe half a game, three quarters of a game and and, and giving one away, but it it kind of feels that they have they have like enough in the tank, and I also don't fully expect you know um, some of these guys on the especially in the Zalgris backcourt like Walters had a had a good game fourteen points um, you know but Walkup's been inconsistent Westerman's been inconsistent you know I I just don't really think that that like Zalgris I mean I'm not saying they're going to get blown out but you know it wouldn't surprise me at all for Fenerbahce to to wrap this one up in counters next week. Okay, excellent. Um, that's that's two of the series done. Um, let's move on to the third, a really fascinating clash. Probably, you know, the the closest in terms of uh, well, t- certainly in terms of points difference. Two close games. Um, Anadolu Efes and Barcelona tied one apiece. Efes came away with the first game. That's seen on Erdan seventy five to sixty eight. Barca clawing it back to win by two points, seventy four to seventy two in game two. I personally only saw game one. Um, and I thought it was a great game. Efes came out with a lot of purpose. They hit Barcelona hard. They executed everything. They seemed prepared. And, you know, what What my favorite thing from this game was, was I thought this was a great, I tweeted this at the time, like it was a great example of the the intensity of and the acceleration of decision-making on the coaching staff in, in the playoffs. There's no time to sit on your hands. Um, you can't wait to make changes. You know, the the Efes the backcourt was killing Barcelona early on. Pesic immediately goes to a 1-3-1 matchup zone in the second half. Kind of like gave Shane Larkin a little bit to think about. Um, I don't know, as I said, didn't see game two. Don't know if they went back to that. But just a really fascinating uh, example of the, you know, the, the improvisation and the, the quick thinking that needs to go into, into this coaching matchup, which is two wily old, uh, wily old foxes. Um, George, we'll go to you. Any thoughts on, on this series so far? Yeah, I think it's it should be a really good series. I think it's a battle of two uh, like imperfect teams, which sometimes can make for like more interesting and kind of more compelling viewing. Like I think for Efes, they've got some injury issues. I think like Moton being out means Mormon is pretty much manning the full position for like the entirety of the game, pretty much the entire forty yeah, minutes. Like, yeah, in game two, and, like I kind of see him wearing down a bit, and like there's kind of some imperfect players around there. Like Bobois isn't getting minutes now. Like 
they've got guys kind of hanging around playing major roles like guys like James Anderson who aren't perfect but like there's a coherence to the team and like they're obviously led by guys like Misic who have been fantastic they've got kind of good guys up front in Dunstan and like Simon kind of rolling back the years to his 1990s style point forward play which I know you're a massive fan of Rob oh man um, always and, then on, that. and then on the other hand like Barca just like kind of just like yeah as I said like FS have some coherence whereas Barca don't like I don't feel like there's really like well-defined roles for these guys in the front court like they kind of seem to pass things off based on like who's playing well like Tomic is really inconsistent Singleton you can't really ever guarantee the level of effort with Serafan injured they've moved Oriola over to center and they're playing Smits as the backup four now and I don't feel like there's too much of an identity with this Barca team at times um and like it's too reliant on inconsistency but also on the other hand like we have these games where like inconsistent players have great games like in that game two I thought Adam Hangel was really great and then he almost threw the game away by kind of throwing a pass out of bounds with a second left when he could have just kind of held on to it and let the clock expire that was like a really odd moment for me um I kind of feel like Efez might be able to pick a game off in Barcelona but just because this just isn't a trustworthy Barcelona team and I feel that Efez could probably close it out in five as well is my kind of take on the series yeah, I think I'm with you on that. I think FS will. I, I still think this is a five game series. I think FS will get one in Barcelona and then probably win it. Um, but yeah, for me, it's like I I think I completely agree with George. Where it seems like everybody on Barcelona just has like a little bit of a flaw. Where where like Hanga, that was a great example where he had 17 points and then literally threw the game away. So I I don't know. I I just don't fully trust either of these teams. Um, I was disappointed that FS, you know, they, they had a chance to win this game late. Uh, Kronoslav Simon had a pretty good look at a three-pointer with 11 seconds left. When they were down by two, he missed it. Uh, they got bailed out by Hanga when they couldn't foul. And then, um, and then on the inbounds play with 0.9 seconds left, I thought Misic was open as he was kind of curling around and, and Simon could have hit him and said he threw a more difficult pass across the court to Mormon that slipped through his hands and, and they lost the game. But it's tough to, I guess it's tough to blame somebody in that situation because everything's just moving so fast and, uh, you know, you don't want a five-second call or something like that. But I thought FS had their chances. Uh, it definitely hurts to lose a game by two points at home, but I'm still confident in them winning this one. Um, I, I don't think that Barcelona really have an answer for Misic. She had 21 in the first game, 15 in the second Um and Larkin has had some like up and down moments, a couple struggles, but he's he's also had a stretch in both games where he's just absolutely killed it for like five, ten minute stretches and is really able to swing the momentum for FS. So I think they still have enough enough to get it done, but it's definitely going to be um, you know, probably the closest of the four series, I think. Yeah, I mean I feel like I'm kind of we, we didn't end up doing a preview podcast, but I, I made some notes for it and I kind of feel like reviewing these two games is just like regurgitating the notes that I made but one of the one of those notes was that like these two teams are both as as you guys have both alluded to like inconsistent um although Fez's problem I think as we said uh, a while ago was they kind of beat everybody that they should beat and they didn't really beat anybody above them um and I can't really make up my mind whether Barcelona is a team they should beat they split the series um in the regular season but 
you know, you often hear this said by, you know, like pundits of the NCAA tournament where, you know, you say you don't know some of these teams, but like, look at their guards. Like, who are their guards? You know, in, in, in elimination play, um, I know this is a series, but I'm getting to the point. Um, you know, it, 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 in this kind of high intensity game, you need, you need guards who you can trust. And you look at the FS guards and, and Larkin is by no means perfect, but as you said, he had a really big, big impact in game one, um, really kind of kept FS afloat when Barca were coming back. Misic, obviously we trust, you know, probably all EuroLeague team this season. Um, on the Barca team, I just don't really trust their guards. Um, you know, Pangos has been frustratingly inconsistent. Ribas, you know, got a DMP in, in at least one of these games. Um, yeah, I just, you know, Hertel is, is, is who he is at this point, you know, with, with good and, and, and in my opinion, slightly more bad. Um, I just kind of trust this FS team a little bit more to, to win two of the next three games. Um, I don't really think I even trust Barca to win two in a row. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, I mean, I thought FS looked like a Final Four team. And certainly in the first, in the first half of game one, they just came out really, really prepared. They seemed, you know, this was a new kind of feel for them. In previous series, you know, even though they've taken Olympiacos to five games, they had, you know, twice in recent years, they had a good series with Madrid. They never really, really, really seemed like the favorite in any of those series. They didn't have home court advantage in any of those series. They do have it now. Um, I don't think we necessarily, like, had any great revelations about either team in these first two games, but for that reason, I'm, I'm still, I'm still kind of sticking with FS. But yeah, I picked them in five, and, uh, and I think I'm going to stick with that. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. As I mentioned earlier, I still think they're going to win in five. Like, also, like, I kind of feel like they'd be a much more entertaining Final Four team than Barcelona as well. <laughs> like, so, like, I think I'm internally rooting yeah, for them. Yeah, yeah definitely. Definitely. Okay, so I think that's enough about that series. Let's wrap this up with. The only series that has gone 2-0, two, two to oh, as we said at the top of the show, Real Madrid snuck one out at home against Panathinaikos in the first game, 75-72. to 72. Really uh, blew Panathinaikos away, 78-63 in the second game. Um, that was, uh, to, me, I mean, to my mind, 15 points didn't even really tell the story of that game. Big chance, as we said at the top, for Panathinaikos to stamp their authority in this series in game one. Kind of felt, you know, once that chance had slipped by... Maybe they were going to regret it. That certainly came to pass in game two. Nick Kalefez, you know, in my opinion, definitely an MVP contender this season. Shot 0 of 11 in game two, um, only 6 of 19 in game one. If he's not at his top level, Panathinaikos probably can't win. He's doubtful for game three. Um, George, you're, uh, you, you've been clapping your hands in the corner there like the annoying guy at the rec league. I'm going to pass you the rock. Um, you know, is this series over or does Panathinaikos have a chance to extend it? Yeah, I think it's over, and I'm going to use kind of the example of Rick Pitino definitely, absolutely not making the point that he is deliberately not complaining about the referees to every single journalist that he put, speaks to, um, and leaving that instead to the players, the owners, and the club to complain about the referees instead. Um, in that first game, like, yeah, there was like a foul differential, but I think there's like a very good reason why there was, and that is that. Powell um, kind of can't really play James Gist with Tavares on court because, first of all, Gist was a little bit injured and Tavares is a bit too kind of big and physical, like on in terms of rebounding for Gist to be able to effectively play center. So they've been relying on Viukos and Papianis, um, which means they're dropping back into kind of shallow pick and roll coverage, basically. Um, so 
what that meant was all of their guards had to fight through screens and that's where all of their fouls came from. If you look at those foul numbers in the first game, it's like Calathas had four, Kilpatrick had four, lots of other buck guards picked up like one, two, three here and there rather than like their big guys picking up loads of fouls. Um, and I think that's essentially what Panathinaikos' problem is. Um, like at the other end, Real doesn't have to fight through these screens to get a hand up to contest a guy like Nick Calathas. And kind of I think that's ultimately why it makes their life a lot easier in terms of playing defense. Panathinaikos does, not only is it kind of meaning they pick up fouls like in the first game, but also it's quite a tiring way to play defense. And kind of, I think it kind of told ultimately over the course of the two games. Yeah, George, uh, we had an interesting little back and forth on our Slack, which, and I hate bringing up like, this is what we talked about in our Slack this week on our podcast. Um, shout out to every ringer part I've ever listened to. But, um, yeah, I, I was kind of like, I, you know, I completely agree with everything you're saying there. Um, definitely not, again, you're definitely not talking about the refs there in the same way that Patino did. Um, but, but yeah, I, I thought that like, certainly on the final play in game one, um, let's just say that was some enthusiastic defense that Campazzo was allowed to, to play on Keith Langford. Um, and we had a little back and forth in our chat. You, 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 you just let, laid out your case, very convincing. Um, I think they, they got a little bit unlucky, but you know, really one of the other things I said was like, we've seen, uh, I think twice now, again, this is one of the, one of the series where there was a repeat of, you know, a preview of this game in, in week 29 or 30. Um, and both those games, Keith Langford just couldn't get his shot off, uh, in an ISO situation, 2013, 14, even 15, Keith Langford, man, this is a different story, isn't it? They've just got this guy a little bit too late and, this really, um, I think what you, you know, you said Powell's problem was, was everything you just said, you know, picking up fouls, really tiring way to play defense. Um, the other, the other problem they have, which Patino, to be fair, has admitted all season, is none of this team can fucking shoot. Um, Austin, uh, any, any kind of advances on this? Or, you know, do you see this game going, this series rather going uh, any more than three, or does Real Madrid get this done in Oaxaca? I think. I think Panathinaikos could potentially take game three just because the energy level in that building is going to be amazing. I think all of the um, kind of like, I guess the guys outside of Calathis, you could generally expect players like that to perform better at home than on the road. Maybe everyone can kind of step up a little bit, um, but they need Calathis back to like MVP level form. Like if, if he doesn't play, they definitely don't have a shot. If he does play, but he performs the way he has in the first two games, they don't have a shot. Like he, he took 10 three-pointers in the first game. That's just, that's not his game at all. Um, and then in the second game, you know, th- this is just a tough matchup for Panathinaikos because they have a point guard who can't shoot, who needs to get into the paint and Real Madrid have the best rim protector in I guess all of Europe, you could say, in Eddie Tavares just patrolling the paint. And then, yeah, nobody else really on Panathinaikos can shoot when they drive and kick. So it's it's a tough situation. Um, they also, in game two, they just started really poorly. Real Madrid jumped out to that 21-8 to lead at the end of the first quarter and then just never really seemed like Panathinaikos had what it took to come back. Um, they committed 17 turnovers in that game. Jeffrey Taylor has just been killing them, uh, both as, as a shooter on the offensive end and then defensively, he's done a great job. Uh, Rudy's playing really good defense on the perimeter. So it's, it's just a really tough matchup for Panathinaikos. I, I think they could maybe 
take game three, uh, but I wouldn't bet on it. I think this Real Madrid team, it's, it's a lot of veterans. It's a lot of guys who aren't going to be afraid of the moment. So as long as Campazzo, like doesn't have eight turnovers or something, then I think they can probably wrap this up in game three. Yeah, it just speaks to that depth, really, that Sergio Yule missing so far. Um, and, I, and I'm an idiot because, because I said on Twitter a couple of weeks back when, uh, when that was announced that yeah, I don't really think it's that much of a problem for, for, for Real Madrid. They've got other ways to, to, to create offense. Um, whisper it, Yule hasn't been that good this season, um, certainly shooting the ball. Um, and, you know, they've got the depth, you know, okay, like Clement Prepolic isn't really a natural point guard, but he's come in, giving them 11 minutes, 16 minutes uh, in games one and two. Um, you know, basically has barely even missed a shot, hasn't made anything, hasn't done any stupid plays, hasn't really made any mistakes. Um, that's kind of all they need. Kind of knew all that. Um, still picked Panathinaikos in five games because I just thought there was something about momentum, um, something about Kalefes really stepping up in the playoffs. Thanks a lot, Nick. Um, and also, I just really, really wanted uh, some different teams in the final four. So a little bit like your Basconia pick, Austin. I didn't really think it was going to happen, but it's kind of what I wanted. Um, so yeah, I kind of, I kind of uh, bought insurance for my take in advance. So I, I feel like a bit of an idiot. Yeah, like I know it would be cool to see this pal team in the final four, if only just to get like Rick Pitino like quotes from like people from Twitter's like kind of press conference and like mix zone kind of comments as well. Like I think that would be truly hilarious. Um, but I think like Real have this quite easily. Like. I wouldn't be booking flights to Madrid if I was a Panathinaikos fan. Like, I think it's just been like I think that first game really broke the backs of Panathinaikos, and like I don't think there's really any coming back from it. Yeah, I mean we were yeah, watching it, especially we were, we were watching it, weren't we? Sorry, go ahead, Austin. I was going to say, especially it was especially a backbreaking loss because they had just had a similar loss to Madrid like two weeks before. Like you mentioned, Rob, in round 29 when Panathinaikos should have won that game and then Rudy hit that fucking ridiculous rainbow three-pointer to beat them. So that was two games in a row where Panathinaikos were right there and Real Madrid were able to pull it out and get the win. I think that's got to be pretty demoralizing. Yeah, I was going to say, we were uh, talking of three-point shooting. We were, we were watching this game uh, not together obviously but like at the same time live and um you know i was kind of like getting a little bit bold thinking oh, come on you know like this this is happening like panathinaikos is up like maybe seven eight i forget exactly what um and then I, I can't remember which one of you guys said said but just like just completely killed my buzz where it's like well if you were lying on kalethes hitting threes which he just hit like back-to-back threes or at least like a couple um in quick succession and i was like i yeah you're right you're completely right this isn't gonna this isn't gonna last um, and then, you know, uh, a friend of the show, Arkadios, was saying after the first game, you know, this kind of reminds me of 2011, the Barca series. I think they dropped the first game in that one. And I was like, ah, you know, that may- maybe, maybe, maybe. And then and then game two happens. So, you know, RIP, uh, my, my Panathinaikos uh, standing um, for the season. I think we're going to have one more game. But but yeah, guys, it's uh, it's looking like Madrid again in the final four. That's not a bad thing. Like seeing this team come back no, from not at all. Seeing this team come back from like Doncic going to the NBA without really adding a replacement is quite cool. Like Memo Shesheska like having like this long term base of players that you're developing and kind of growing into like a cohesive unit is a much better plan than kind of just letting players leave and replacing them with NBA cast offs, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I think we're gonna see the Seska checkbook opening uh Opening this summer, it remains to be seen. Uh, there was a uh, Vatutin was uh, was was pictured on the sideline in game two, um, looking increasingly 
Um, I mean, you know, that, he's got that kind of like, um, if I may say so, kind of poker face, you know, like a little bit difficult to read his mind usually, but man, just, just the, the silent rage you could see was, was building. You know, he was kind of mentally totting up how much it's going to cost to replace some of these guys. Of course, Seska probably going to make the final four again now. We've said all this, uh, but hey, that's... That, that. Well, Rob, you, you, remember, um, you remember at the final four last year when Seska lost in, uh, in the semifinals and the reporter was asking uh, Etudis if he thought he would be losing his job. But he, he said it in the way where he was like, you know, some people say he should probably be fired. <laughs> that, that was a, that was a <laughs> bold question. I, I do remember that very well. It, I, I wish it was me. Unfortunately, it wasn't. Yeah. So, so shout out to whoever that was. But um, yeah, those the the calls for Etudis to be gone are, are going to get a lot louder. Um, you know, just losing the first the first home playoff game since two thousand eight, uh, snapping their twenty one game winning streak at home. Like, if Etudis doesn't turn this thing around and win the title, uh, I would I would be really shocked if he's back next season. Uh, absolutely. Um, talking of being back, though, we will be back. At some point next week, um, I think that is going to do it for this week. Um, I was a little bit down in the dumps after the first uh, first slate of these games. I was like, oh man, you know, come on, can we just get the final four? These series are kind of over. But hey, how wrong was that? We have at least three of the four series poised to be all-time classics. Is that too much of an exaggeration, perhaps? But, you know, they're going to be a lot better than they seemed after those first game blowouts. Um, Austin... Any final thoughts for this week before we wrap it up? No, I'm just really excited that we get some guaranteed game fours. I think the Basconia Seska series in particular is going to be really fascinating. I think uh, Basconia have a legitimate chance to to pull off a huge upset and make it to the final four in their own city, which would be really cool. So I'm rooting for them. I'm um, also really excited to check out uh, Zalgiris, Fenner, and FS Barca, and then Real Madrid. Not as much, but um, you know, I think they'll probably probably close that one out on Tuesday. Excellent. Uh, likewise, George. Any any final thoughts before we uh, before we hit stop? Yeah, I think it was my kind of like slightly miserableist view that the playoffs are my least favorite time of the Euroleague season that perhaps pushed you towards the the dim view of the first round of games. But like, even from my position, like I think we've got three good series here, and like. At least, like the Real Panathinaikos game, Panathinaikos series had a really entertaining first game. Um, so, like, yeah, in terms of like playoff series, I think all of these have been pretty good and like have had some had some definite moments there. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, okay, that's 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 just about it for this week. Uh, thanks for listening. As always, um, we'll be back with you. Um, not sure after game three, maybe after game four, but we'll be back uh, next week to wrap up um, maybe the conclusion of some series or maybe to look ahead to some game five. So, join us for that. Um, for now, uh, on behalf of Austin, George, and myself, thanks for listening to the Early League Adventures podcast, and we will catch you next time.